Romans chapter 1. While you're turning there, um, let me sort of make this observation, I guess. We're now, this is our uh, third sermon as we're kind of preaching our way through uh, the truths of the Apostles' Creed. That's kind of why we've been saying it every week uh, for the last few weeks. Uh, I'll remind you we're doing the, the shorter version, not the longer version, kind of taking longer phrases rather than uh, a word at a time, which we certainly could do. Um, you know, creeds um, serve two purposes. Um, for one, they unite. Uh, they reunite people around these common beliefs, these agreed upon Truths, these, as we, we confessed, affirmed our faith using the Apostles' Creed a few minutes ago. And when we do, we're saying we agree with everybody else who agrees with these things, who believes these truths to be biblical. But let's admit, creeds also separate. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. I know in our world today, we think anything that's divisive at all has got to be bad. Um, and I just don't think that's true. Um, but at the very least, our phrase this morning is, is really in part what distinguishes. It's where, well, it's where, it's where Judaism would have to stop the Apostles' Creed. It's where Islam would have to stop the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so the reality is uh, creeds and confessions unite and they distinguish. But they do so, hopefully, around Biblical truths, uh, not man-made, man-created, man-thought-up heresies. Uh, So this morning we will look at really the the third phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I believe, that's at the very beginning, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We'll read Romans 1, verses 1-7. through If you are able, let me ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work now. We need uh, Your help. Uh, These are um, living and active words, uh, but we will tune them out unless you, by your uh, sovereign mercy and grace, work them into our hearts and lives. And so we pray for your work in and among us now. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever um, paid attention to this kind of stuff. It seems like in, in movies, anytime somebody does something kind of like, I don't know, amazing or special or um, out of the ordinary, it seems like there's always the same sort of standard question. 
in the 1989 version of Batman, Michael Keaton is holding a dude over the side of the edge of a bridge. And he's like, don't kill me. And he says, I'm not going to kill you. And I want you to tell everybody about me. And he says, who are you? I'm Batman. <laughs> or in The Princess Bride, in that great sword fighting scene when um, the man in black throws his sword off that sort of upper level. It sticks in the ground. It angles perfectly towards him. He jumps off the ledge, grabs this bar, flips around at one time, lands perfectly, you know, nails the landing, grabs his sword, and he's ready to fight again. And Inigo Montoya goes, Who are you? I'm no one of consequence. He says to Buttercup later, I'm no one to be trifled with. There should be something in us that when we see, I don't know, crazy, amazing, outlandish, unusual, you can sort of insert your word there. You can choose your adjective, um, but something that's just out of the ordinary, that's just greater than usual, that's more abnormal than you, I don't know. But it should always drive you to ask a question. Who are you? The creed answers that question for us about Jesus. Before it talks about what he does, it tells us who he is. The reality is we should read through scripture and and see prophecies about Christ and what he's going to do. And we should watch his life in the gospels and what he does. And we should be driven to go, who is this guy? The people around him did. Well, Paul gives us an answer here in Romans chapter 1. He tells us who Christ is. We, we could have, incidentally, we could have gone any number of places. You could pretty much just drop your Bible open anywhere and answer this question at some level or another. But Paul answers for us in these first seven verses of Romans 1, who Christ is. Now, the next couple of weeks, we'll look at what Christ does. We'll look at His work later. Uh, but first, uh, we'll look at the person of Christ. The, the, the confession, the creed, the Apostles' Creed takes them in that order. So what are we confessing about the person of Christ? Notice, first of all, we're confessing that He is fully divine. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, he, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle of God, set apart for the gospel of God. And then when you take verse 3, concerning His Son. The gospel of God is about His Son. And then Paul goes on to explain, that's Jesus. So when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the Son of God. Or you could look at verse 4. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So this Gospel that Paul's about to unfold for us, unfold for the church in Rome, is a gospel about the Son of God 
whom Paul says is Jesus and is, is further evidenced by His resurrection. His resurrection from the dead proves the fact that Jesus was and is God's eternal Son. In fact, for that matter, the reference to the resurrection from the dead at all. He's declared to be the Son of God because of of the resurrection. And it's because of that resurrection that we have received grace, verse 4. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is the cause, it's sort of the, the impetus behind the grace that you and I receive from God. It's because He rose again. It's because He's defeated death that we have received grace from Christ. For that matter, He gives us a little overview of of the Gospel. It's it's not very detailed. In fact, he, He skips over details that He will flesh out later in this letter. Uh, but he at least gives us a, a brief outline of the gospel of Christ. Christ Jesus is God's Son. The prophets have been talking about Him for centuries. The Old Testament is about Jesus, he says. In fact, as you read your Old Testament, this is, this by the way, this is further reason not to throw away the Old Testament. This is further reason. We, we know all kinds of things about our need for Christ from the Old Testament that we wouldn't know if we only had the New, by the way. The Old Testament is about this very person that Paul is talking about. Christ Jesus, the Son of God. The prophets have been talking about Him. He's been raised from the dead, which obviously implies that He died. Of course, we know and we find out later in the letter He died because we are sinners. He died to save us from our sin. He died because somebody had to shed blood for our cosmic treason. Somebody had to die to to pay the debt that our cosmic treason demands. It's either you or it's Christ. But the fact that He rose again proves that He's not just a man. He's not just a mere man. Just another person dying for what they've done wrong. Instead, He's been raised from the dead. And notice what else Paul has done in these first few verses. You know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's not a, that's not a biblical word. It is a biblical concept. Three in one. Not three individual gods. One God, three, pers- three persons in the Godhead, equal in power and glory. Well, we see that right here in these verses. Paul's already talked about God the Father, Christ His Son, and the work of the Spirit in our lives and in Christ's resurrection. In other words, you need to understand that when we affirm the Apostles' Creed. We are saying we believe wholly, fully, completely, 100% in a fully God Jesus. 
That he wasn't just some man that God adopted or God picked out, but that he's actually God's eternal son, eternally begotten of the Father. We could steal the phrase from the Nicene Creed. Paul says, Jesus is fully God. But second, we're also affirming that he's fully human. Because notice verse 3. Now, we could, we could go to Matthew 1. We could go to Luke 2. We could go to John 1 and do the exact same thing. But look at verse 3. Paul says that this Son of God, concerning the Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh. Do you get, do you get those emails from Ancestry.com? We, we've talked about this before, I think. I know some of you have done the whole blood test thing and sent those off and some of you are confused by your results. Every now and then I'm tempted and I've done it. I kind of dig around a little bit. I'm not going to spend money because it doesn't matter that much to me. So I don't, I don't spend money to find out details, but I dig around every now and then and think, I wonder who I'm related to. I wonder who my people are. Because I grew up at First Press Columbia. And in 1795, First Press Columbia, the charter for First Press Columbia was signed. And on that list is a John Hooker. And his signature looks a lot like my dad's. It's kind of creepy, kind of spooky. I know my dad's old, but he's not that old. I mean, I had a conversation one time at RYM. It's a, it's a PCA youth summer conference um, with a guy from Mississippi who said, look, if you can trace your people from South Carolina back to this particular guy who had a brother who moved from South Carolina to Mississippi, I can give you everything else. His last name was Hooker too. There's lots of hookers in Pontotoc, Mississippi. There's Thomas Hooker who founded Connecticut, basically. We won't talk about General Joe we won't talk about Richard over in England. There are all kinds of actually relatively famous hooker people back in the past. And, and I'm kind of inclined to, to grab, to, just to pay enough to find out. Maybe I'm related to one of the cool ones. One of the ones I want to be related to. And if I'm not, I'm going to get my money back and cancel the subscription all that. Genealogies tell you who married whom and to whom was so-and-so born. They work because, because biology works. They work because of the way we as humans are designed to have children and, and the way ancestry works. And so David, I mean, Jesus can actually trace his genealogy back to David. Well, wait a minute. God, hold on. Does God have an ancestry? If he's, if he's just fully God, he doesn't have a lineage. He just is. But as fully human, he has... A lineage. He has ancestors. He, he can claim the throne of Israel because it traces back to King David. 
It's his rightful claim to being an heir to the throne of Israel. Jesus has descended from David according to the flesh. For that matter, the name Jesus, the name Jesus is just a. It's it's really, it's not a special name in first century Israel. In fact, he basically shares the same name as Joshua, who led the Israelites into the Promised Land after Moses' death. It's it's a variation of the same name. It was a. It's not an uncommon name. It's not like it was given to him and him only, and nobody's ever had anything remotely resembling Joshua, Yeshua. But it's a name you give to children. It's a name a a parent gives to a child, just like any other parent in his day could have given to their children. It's a regular, common, human child name. It means God saves. It just so happens that in this case, it has a special meaning in the way God saves. Because how does God save? God saves by sending His Son to take on flesh to live a holy and righteous life in our place. The eternal Son of God, fully God, fully divine, worthy of all praise, becomes a man, fully human, with the same sorts of limitations that come along with that. Let me show you just real quick. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 8, we get a great illustration of this. We could do this any number of ways, but just to to make the the point clear through a a picture of Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 23. Uh, And when He, Jesus, got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid of you of little faith? And he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, who are you? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I want you to do me a favor. Tonight, there's supposed to be another line of storms that come through town. Here's your challenge. Go out there tonight when the storms come and make it stop. So the, the JV boys soccer team at Athens High has played two games this season. We've had six or seven uh, canceled. We've had an entire tournament, three games, canceled. The girls have played one game. So, and it's all because of weather. None of the players, none of the coaches can control the weather. So here's the deal. When the line of storms comes through tonight, you go outside and you make it stop. Please, because my dogs don't like it. I need you to actually stop. You can't. You and I can't control creation. We aren't above it. We are part of it. Jesus could actually stand on a boat and go, stop. And then it's smooth as glass. Why? Because He's greater than creation. He's the one that brought creation into existence. Creation exists because Jesus created. 
So of course He can stop a storm. Because He's God. Well then riddle me this. Why is He asleep? Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, and power. That God doesn't need to sleep. In fact, the psalmist tells us as much. Neither slumbers nor sleeps. Where was Jesus when the storm came? Crashed out. Now, I don't know how that works. We can't sleep through a storm in a house, much less on a boat. But do you see the picture? Fully God and fully human. Jesus, the man, needed to sleep. But Jesus, fully divine, can control storms. When you affirm the Apostles' Creed, you're saying that's my Savior. That's Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. You know the phrase... To err is human, or to err is human if you want to be that kind of picky about it. To err is human. You know that's not true, right? To err is fallen. We weren't created to to mess up. We weren't created to to make mistakes. We weren't created to break things. We weren't created to fall apart. That's a result of the fall, not a result of our humanity. To err is not human. To err is fallen, but it is not human. Jesus, fully man and yet without sin. Without that limitation that you and I have. We confess that Jesus is fully God and He's fully man, but then we also confess that Jesus is our Savior King. Notice how the the Apostles' Creed goes, I believe, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Look at verse 4. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or look at verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word is is master. The word is king and ruler and authority over your life. You do realize, by the way, that Christ is not a last name. It's a title. He's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The anointed one. The chosen, appointed one to redeem His people. He's the Messiah that's been promised throughout Generations since Genesis 3, for that matter. And Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm a servant of this Master, of this promised Redeemer, Redeemer King. He's our Messiah. He's our Lord. He's our Master. In fact, for that matter, the, the Old Testament prophets had longed for this. Israel was looking for a king. They were looking for this Messiah to come and ride in on a big, giant, white stallion with a big old sword drawn, armor. And they're looking at Rome thinking, those are the people that our Messiah is going to destroy. And then we are going to be free and we are going to be on top. 
That's what, that was the trouble they had with Jesus. Because Jesus rides in on a donkey and washes people's feet instead. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't, that's not the king they were looking for. They thought the king would throw off their oppressive Roman rule. And yet Paul says he is a king. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is the one whom we serve. We don't like we don't like the word slave, and for good reason. We don't like the word servant. We don't we certainly don't like the concept of being a servant because that, for crying out loud, is not my job. Except Paul has no trouble whatsoever saying, I'm his servant. I'm his doulos. I'm his slave. He's my master and I am his subject. What he says goes. His rule is my rule. Paul has absolutely no trouble whatsoever claiming joyfully, eagerly, I'm a servant of Christ and he's my Lord. He's my Master. Think about it. What does a king do? A king subdues people to himself and rules over them and gives them commands and he provides for them and he defends them. It's exactly what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says Jesus does for us. How is he our king? Well, he subdues us to himself. He governs us, rules us by His Word and by His Spirit, and He defends and restrains and defends and conquers our enemies. Christ rules by His Word. The Bible. He rules by His Spirit. He rules in our hearts and lives. We are His subjects. And the goal is for us to grow in our love for and desire for obedience to our King. In fact, he even uses the word obedience in verse 5. Christ rules to bring us into subjection to Him as our King. We're confessing that Christ is fully divine, He's fully human, and He is our Savior, King, or our Lord. I've said it before, you'll hear me say it maybe, I don't know, thousands more times, I don't have any idea. We often say we're not saved by works, you know that's not true. You are absolutely saved by works. You're just not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ. But His salvation, that salvation is intended to save us to works. He saves us to be in subjection to Him as our King. If you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, then our lives should reflect that more and more. should reflect His Lordship in our lives. Fully God, fully man, and our Redeemer, King, our Lord. You read through Scripture. You watch Jesus asleep on a boat and calming a sea like in two different minutes. In one minute He's asleep, the next minute He's calming a storm. 
You watch Him feed 5,000 people with enough food for two people. You watch Him feed 4,000. You watch Him raise the dead. You watch Him heal the sick. And you should be driven to, who are you? Well, He's the God-man. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh who came to save you from your sin by living the righteous life that you and I cannot and yet to suffer the death that you and I deserve as a man in your place. But He's also the Lord who can and will subdue our rebellious hearts and bring them into subjection to Him. Have you submitted to Christ? Are you His subject? Are you trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Have you submitted to His rule? Have you run to Him and admitted your sin and confessed your sin? And are you trusting in Him to deliver you from that sin? Because He's there to save you. For those of us, we are His subjects. We are under His rule and care. This passage urges us to know Him more, to know Him better, and to submit more and more to Him by His rule. Oh, that, that Grace Covenant Church might, might be marked more and more as people who are subject to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. That you would even send your Son, your eternal Son, your only Son, eternally begotten of the Father, to come and take on flesh and live as a man on this earth in our place. That alone is infinite grace. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would be at work in our hearts and lives. Bring us more and more into subjection, under subjection to Your rule by Your Word and by Your Spirit. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ and for the good and advancement of the Gospel in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, and in our community. Amen. Uh, Let's...